Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Mike. Thanks so much for tuning in to part 2B of this three-part series with Mr. John Vento. As you know, we decided to break part two up into parts A and B because of the fact that it was a little longer than we'd anticipated because John provided so much amazing information. And I decided to split that up into two separate podcasts, about an hour each. So again, this is part B of the second part of the three-part series with Mr. John Vento. In this part, we're going to talk about the categorization of assets when you purchase or sell a dental practice. We'll talk about goodwill uh, and how that is calculated and allocated in a practice transition. We'll discuss how to handle depreciation and amortization of practice assets, as well as John will go into some different practice acquisition and disposition strategies that will help from a tax perspective. We'll explore whether or not you should own the real estate that houses your practice. And if you do own that real estate, the benefits of having a cost segregation study done when you purchase the building in which you practice. We'll close up by getting into some investment strategies, which can really create generational wealth, something called a 1031 exchange in the event that you do purchase and own your practice building or the building in which you practice, uh, how you can take advantage of the 1031 exchange, the rules and guidelines therein. And John will also explore and discuss uh, what is called a Delaware Statutory Trust or DST and how that is a special type of 1031 exchange that you could find very beneficial based on your particular situation. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And without further ado, let's start part 2B. So what would you say are some of the most important tax smart dental practice acquisition, disposition strategies? Um, there's a lot, a lot of confusion out there when you're buying or selling. Uh, I hear it from residents all the time. Uh, they'll, they'll ask me questions about things on contracts. I ultimately defer to the experts for that. But I know it's a big point of confusion and and it can sometimes sever what would have been an otherwise nice relationship between a junior doc and a senior doc. Just Maybe it's just because they're not even speaking the same language and they don't understand it. So what are some of the strategies that you have found in, in working with clients over the years uh, that are things both parties should understand before they enter into a buying or selling type of arrangement or agreement. Yeah. Uh, and again, they, there's just so much we could cover in this area. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on three tax much strategies when looking at uh, a contract of either purchasing or selling a dental practice, because from a tax mark point of view, these can make a significant difference. Okay. So obviously there's legal aspects to the decision. That's for a lawyer. I'm going to focus on the tax aspect. So I'm going to break this up into three broad, and but yet very important categories. One is understanding a little bit about depreciation and amortization. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain what that means in a bit. Understanding what goodwill is and making sure we can categorize it as personal goodwill. Okay. And then if you also own the office building or thinking of buying the office building associated with the dental practice, knowing something about implementing what's called the 1031 exchange as well. So I'm going to cover those in a little bit of detail here with you. So why is it important to know what you're buying and how it gets categorized? 
because that's going to dictate whether it's deductible or not deductible and how it's going to be deducted. So generally, when you buy a dental practice or sell a dental practice, one of the first questions I get as the dental CPA is what's the breakdown of what we're buying or selling in that practice? Mm. You, gotta, you have to know the pros and cons to each. So, for example, for most dental practices that you're going to buy or sell, the number one thing you're doing is buying goodwill. What is goodwill? It's the good name and reputation of the practice. It's the patient list. It's the relationship. It's the fact that patients the last 40 years are used to driving to this location, getting out of the car, walking into that site. So that's what we call an intangible asset. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it but it's real and that's sellable. Mm -hmm. So goodwill is written off when you buy it over a 15 year period. Okay. That's important to know when we're allocating the purchase price. Also a covenant not to compete. So if you sell a dental practice, the, buy the dentist buying it doesn't want you to set up a new dental practice down the street because mm -hmm. now you're gonna be competing with them. That's also called an intangible asset written off over a 15 year period. Things like purchasing a building, doing improvements to your building. Those things are generally written off over 39 years. So there's a long list of categories that you need to know the different buckets so that you can take advantage of the, what the tax law allows you to do. So if there's an opportunity to write something off over 39 years, let's write it off all in one year. Mm -hmm. If you're in a high tax bracket, obviously you want to take advantage of writing it off and getting that big upfront tax break. So very often a dentist will start a practice from scratch. They'll buy a building. They'll build out that whole building. Uh, the contract for the building purchase just says you paid $2 million for the building. The contractor says, I just, you just, I just charged you a million dollars to build out this practice. If you don't have a detailed breakdown of what exactly it is you bought, what the components are, then the presumption is going to be you're going to write it off over 39 years. Mm -hmm. That is not going to work very well for many people because right. you're going to get a very small deduction. So having a breakdown when you purchase a building itself, you could get what's called a segregation study done. An engineer comes out. He'll break out the component parts of the building you just bought. And based on those component parts, some of those things will have to write off over 39 years. Someone might be able to write off immediately, some over a shorter period of time. Same is true with a build-out. What I always tell my dental clients is this. If you're building out your practice, mm -hmm. get a detailed list from the contractor, item by item, what you paid for. This way, we could subdivide that contract into whatever, 12, 20 different components and take more depreciation up front than we were looking for that break. So knowing these type of things is very important and it's an important point. part of that contract. In the world of depreciation is the write-off of assets you bought. And let me make that distinction as well, by the way. So if you bought dental supplies and you're going to use them up that year, mm -hmm. that's not an asset. That's just supplies. You write it off the supply expense. But if you buy something like a dental chair that may have a useful life of 10 years, you may have to write that off over a longer period of time during its wear and tear period. Mm -hmm. Same thing, you buy a building, the presumption is that your wear and tear in that building is 39 years. We know that's not true, but that's what the tax code says. Right. 
So you write off part of that building over a 39 year period. So there's a section in the code called section 179. And what it says is if you meet the requirements of code section 179, based on current law, you could write off up to $1,160,000 of certain qualified costs all in one year. Okay. So again, knowing this is a big deal. Uh, if you go to your accountant at the end of the year, you give them a shoebox worth of receipts and you say, here, have fun with this, <laughs> and there's no interaction, no discussion, I hate to say it, but nine out of 10 of those accountants, they're gonna just assume it was all capital improvements and you got to write off over 39 years. Mm -hmm. So spending the time, investing not only your time, but your money. If you're looking for a tax advisor that's going to charge you the least, he's going to do the least for you. You want to look at your tax advisor as a profit center in your business. Just like marketing, you know, you're going to spend 10000 a year on marketing. If you're not bringing in 100,000 more in business, then you're not doing the right marketing. Mm -hmm. Same is tr true your professional practice team. So if you're paying someone 20,000 a year and they're saving you 100,000, 200,000 a year, I look at that as a profit center. So don't only invest your time, don't be afraid of investing your money in getting the right advice because at mm -hmm. the end, it'll make a big difference. Here's a good example of that. Uh, just a few years back, I think it was about five or six years back, uh, new terminology came to, into existence with the IRS called Qualified Improvement Property. What that means is you could take a Section 179 on what previously you had to write off over 39 years. Mm -hmm. You can now write that off under Section 179 and get a big upfront deduction. And generally speaking, any improvements you make to the interior structure of your office, whether you own the building or not, now will qualify for Section 179 benefit. What is not included is if you're enlarging the building, let's say it's a, the footprint of the building is uh, 2,000 square feet, you turn it into 3,000 square mm -hmm. foot, the extra 1,000 doesn't qualify. Uh, if you're putting an elevator, escalator in your building, if you're putting in structural beams to support it, that doesn't qualify. So it's almost everything internal now, but not everything. And also some external things, such as a new roof, HVAC, fire alarm system, uh, burglar alarm system, security system, those things, even though those are also external improvements, those also fall under the category of this new qualified improvement property. And what does that mean? You have an opportunity to write it all off in one year instead of writing it off over 39 years. It makes a big difference. I, I can speak to that personally because I remember before that happened and I do something on the building. I own like the roof or you do, you know, maintenance of the handicap ramp, whatever it was. And, and it, we'd meet tax time. You know, it, it's an outlet. It's a significant outlay. You're talking tens of thousands of dollars that you're putting out. And like that, that fact that that's not deductible in that year used to kill me. It's like, well, I got to write this off over 39 years. This is, you know, it, it's, it's painful. And then all of a sudden like that, I remember we met, you're like, you know, now you can write these certain items off my, oh my, it's a, that's a huge difference in terms of what that can mean, especially I mean, if you own your building, for sure. I'll give you a common example that I've faced, especially a new dentist just starting out. Uh, they put in, let's say, 100000 of their own money. They brought in, let's say, a million dollars of revenues, and now they spent the million dollars and the 100000 they put in, and they have no money left in the bank account at the end of the year. I'll give you an extreme example. 
we go to do their accounting records and we say, well, you have a $300,000 profit. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. Right. How could I have a $300,000 profit? I have no money in the bank. Well, the reason is because you spent $300,000 in improvements that yep. you, you have to write off over 39 years. So it's almost a phantom income if you think about it. Yep. But now I have to tell them you have no money in the bank for all $100,000 in taxes. Yep. That never goes over very, very well. <laughs> so finding these deductions and also making sure the financing that you do when you buy these assets, mm-hmm. to make sure you got to try to sort of time those things together. And this brings up yet another interesting point. Uh, you know, when you look at tax planning, you can't look at it in a box. You can't look at it with closed eyes. You got to look at it over a long extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the example I'm going to give you here is as follows. Let, let's say, say, John, I heard about this great thing called Section 179. I want to pay no taxes this year. Get my mm-hmm. income down to zero. Great. We got your income down to zero. The tax bracket that year was zero because they had no taxable income. Uh, that client that year feels great about that. Mm-hmm. But it's not a good idea. I'll tell you why. Because if you're in a low tax bracket because you had low income that year, this year that tax break could be worth 15% tax savings to you or maybe mm-hmm. zero. Mm-hmm where sometimes if you spread it over time, if you anticipate that this year was your big low income year, I may not take section 179 or this other special bonus depreciation. Because I'm gonna say, I'm looking at the big picture here. Yes, I could save you 10 or 15 or 20% for every dollar you spent, but I'd rather save you 50 cents on the dollar and we'll spread it over the next three, four or five years. Mm -hmm. So tax planning has to be looked at, not just on a year by year basis, but you know, what is going to be different next year over the next five years? Many people don't think about this. And again, the single most important thing we do for our clients on the dental CPA side of our practice, which by the way, I mentioned to you before, that part of the business is headed up by my son. His name is John, John Jr. Uh, this is what he does all, all day long. So we do mid-year planning meetings for clients, especially those that are new startups because they need a little extra hand-holding. But we do year-end planning. That's the busiest time of the year. People think I'm crazy that November and December is the busiest time of the year in our practice. That's when we make the biggest difference Mm -hmm. in people's lives because we position things so that you're going to pay the least amount of tax possible. And let's say a dentist is sitting at the end of the year with a $200,000 profit. He's debating about buying a piece of equipment. Well, guess what? It may make sense for him to buy that equipment and place it in service this year that we get them under a certain tax threshold. So again, by far the single most important thing you should get from any tax advisor, it's not the tax return. That's the easy part, right? That's compliance. It's the thought process. It's the tax smart strategies. It's the implementation of these strategies. At the end of the day, we already know we're all government employees, right? We work for the government Mm -hmm. for half the year. Uh, why, Why not work for the government a little less and be able to take advantage of keeping more of what we make for ourselves and not give it up in unnecessary tax dollars. Yeah, two, those are great points. And two things I want to elaborate on exactly what you just said. Our meetings, 
when we would meet for tax planning, our meetings in the fall were way more involved than our meeting around tax time. I mean, our meeting around tax time was you were just checking in, making sure our projections were lining up. And if there was anything, let's say I did end up buying a, a bigger piece of equipment than I had thought I might when we met, say, in November, we would make those adjustments accordingly. But the tax prep time in the in the spring before filing was much quicker, more efficient because we had it all set that the meeting that took the time and exchanging the emails back and forth, following up was in, was in the fall. Um, and that let us do a great tax planning. And I, I, I want to stress to all the, the listeners and viewers, it is so important that you find an accountant who has that philosophy because so many things you saw. And when you, your team did a full review of, of the bookkeeping of that year, when you saw that and said, Hey, this is where you're coming in. You're going to be pretty high here you want it if you have it you want to maybe maybe put that extra order in for these supplies or make the investment in that piece of equipment and take advantage of of the section 179 this year and there was time for me to do it uh whereas if you meet with them at the very end of the year the beginning of the following year you're out and you're kind of left with what you're left with so um that is one thing i would say helped and saved a tremendous amount uh, over over my years of practice working with you and your team the other thing I'd say that's important, back to your, your prior point, when you were saying about taking the full value of that depreciation of that asset that year versus over a period of time, you know, if you buy a $150,000 x-ray machine and you section 179 it, but you finance it over, say, five or seven years, you still have to make those payments every year. And you write that check or you see that money go out and you're thinking, you know, bookkeeper writes the check or whatever, however you do it, you're thinking that's that's a deductible expense. The interest might, correct if I'm wrong, the interest might be uh, on that or interest is, but that principal payment is, you know, you could end up, oh, you're going to pay tax on that money, even though you're paying it to the company who from whom you purchased the machine because you've already taken full advantage of the full depreciation of, of that asset. So I think that's a place people get in trouble too, is they, they it, I think when you explain it, they realize, oh yeah, that would be double dipping. But at the same time, when you're writing those checks, maybe three years later, and you're still paying a pretty big chunk, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month in a check. And at the end of the year, you're like, there's $25,000 that we've paid out. And I don't get to, to you know, take any of that as a deduction. No, because you took it all up front. So. Exactly. Right. And that's another one of those examples where a dentist says, I have no money in the bank. How could I have a profit? Well, it's because we up, uploaded the uh, profit early on. And like you said, you're making non-deductible principal payments on the loans now. So all that has to be looked at over not just that single year, but over, over multiple, multiple years. Very important. I can't overemphasize it. And again, our busiest time of the year by far is November and December. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make good for the holidays, you know, with Thanksgiving, <laughs> Christmas, New Year, because we're we're working our butts off, but we're doing it with a passion because we know we're doing the right thing for our clients and we're saving them tons of money. So if your tax advisor takes a two-week vacation, you know, in December, mm-hmm. you know, you know he's not doing the right thing for you. That this is the time of the year where you got to roll up your sleeves, do all the heavy lifting. And then what happens is there's going to be no surprises come April 15th or March 15th because you did an accurate projection and uh, we basically plan for what's to come. So that's the other big thing people absolutely hate. You know, all of a sudden they think life is great and then all of a sudden they get a yeah. notice on April 15th from the account. By the way, you owe $300,000. Well, why didn't you tell me about this before? Well, they didn't do any planning and they waited to the last minute to file. So being prepared when it comes to this is critically, critically important. 
no, it's huge. And it was, I mean, we, I, mean, I can honestly say working with you and your team, that never was the case. The surprises are the, and surprises, but the the questions and the the discussion always happened proactively before the end of that tax year with enough time for me to make the appropriate adjustments. Uh, and then when we met again in the spring, it was more just like, how did it match up? And and usually it was, it was quite accurate because you would tell me these are the things you should do. And I would say, should I do these things? And we'd go back and forth and we'd create a plan and put the plan in place and then come tax time. It's like, okay, it wasn't a surprise. So I, I agree. I can't stress that enough. I hear so many clients say, I owe so much more in taxes than I thought I was going to owe. And I've got a big tax bill. That's a planning problem. I mean, it, you really, that, that shouldn't be happening to you um, at all. You should have an accountant who your CPA should be, should be seeing that and heading it off at the pass and planning proactively. Yeah. So that signs the two things. One is you didn't take advantage of every tax break available because the window right. shut December 31st. Right. I can't tell you in January what you could have deducted last year because it's too late. Uh, so number one, the planning's not happening, and then you're not even met, being prepared financially to come up with the money to pay a tax bill come March 15th or April 15th. So it, it, it's a given. It has to be done. If you're not getting that level of service, you got to ask for it. If they don't provide it, find someone else that, that will do that for you. So I'm going to jump ahead to the other topic here, which was the personal goodwill. That was one of the you know, practice uh, acquisition strategies mm -hmm. that we have yep. to talk about. So I talked a little bit about goodwill. That's an intangible asset. That's your name, reputation, your patient list, the reason people come, your, even your phone number. People are used to dialing that number automatically. Right. You know, DDS, the call. That's all part of your uh, goodwill. So it's very important to the practice owner that the goodwill is viewed as personal goodwill, not uh, corporate goodwill. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure you make that, that distinction. The reason is that you could be subject to double taxation. If the corporation you own is a C corporation mm -hmm. and the goodwill is associated with the corporation, let's assume your goodwill is $2 million when you sell your practice. You're going to pay double tax on that at the federal level, state and city level, at corporate, and then do the same on the personal level. Now, for example, we live in uh, New York City. My practice is based out of New York City. I also have a satellite office in Florida as well. But in New York City, they have New York City corporate tax. Uh, that's a whole nother tax. New York City, as an example, they don't recognize subchapter S status. So even though if you're a sub S, you can avoid paying double taxation on the goodwill of your practice at the federal and state level, but New York City is still going to take 9% of the value of that in the New York City corporate tax. So that's why always keep it separate. Personal goodwill, when you sell your practice, you want to have two separate contracts. One is you selling your name and reputation, your good name and reputation. The other one is selling the physical assets attributable to your practice, and that's what should go through your practice. So I recently wrote an article for Seminars in Orthodontics. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys are welcome to look that up. It's volume 28, number one. Uh, that went out in March of 2022. So I go through a lot of details on this, as well as doing a 1031 exchange related to sale of your dental practice uh, office building as well. So I encourage the, the listeners to uh, get a copy of that article as well. 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great article. It does a really nice job of covering a lot a lot of that as well as kind of transitioning us into the last thing we're going to talk about in in this part is the real estate side. Um so there's the employee employer, the DSO side, there's all that sort of that relates more to the practice. Well, now there's the side of the real estate in which you practice and it gets to be sort of that argument you hear a lot of different people speak very passionately about. It's like the Lisa Carver's buy a car, uh, which is it, which is better on the numbers. And and it, it, people, again, are very passionate about that. Some people are adamant you should own the building in which you're going to practice. Uh, some people are adamant that you should not do that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that from both a tax perspective and a perspective of if one can help get you to that point X, that financial independence more quickly in your experiences and what you've seen? Yeah. Well, if your intention is to set up a dental practice uh, in an office space, if you could buy that office space as well, I'm going to tell you hands down from a tax point of view, it's the single smartest thing you could do. It's truly Tax smart real estate investing strategy is do doing exactly that. Uh, there's a lot of things we want to consider when we're you know, talking about that. But the bottom line is there's tremendous savings associated with owning your own dental practice building. Mm -hmm. So number one, if you're committed to staying in that location for, let's say, seven years or longer, maybe that's the only location you're ever going to be at. Number one, I'd rather you pay rent to yourself mm -hmm. and not to a landlord. So paying rent to yourself is a game changer. Also, you can pay yourself the highest reasonable rent. Mm -hmm. There's advantages to that. Uh, you know, that. That's a whole other story. The other big thing is you're building equity in that building. Now, used an example of leasing a car or, or owning a car. That's a different scenario because over time, the value of that car is going to go down. down. Mm -hmm. Historically, the value of the building will go up. And I think it's always going to go up. There'll be periods where real estate values go down. But now, not only are you making rent payments to yourself, using those rent payments to make mortgage payments. Those mortgage payments include the interest on the loan and the principal payment. You're going to get this phantom deduction, and that's what it is, the phantom deduction. Mm -hmm. The government's going to allow you to write off over 39 years, the purchase price of that building. Mm -hmm. So let's say you, you bought a building for uh, 390,000, divide that by 39, you're getting that big deduction every year, even though your value of property may actually be going up. Mm -hmm. So I love owning real estate as part of a dental practice because you're getting tremendous deductions. You're not paying rent to a stranger and the, the, at the end of the game here, at the end of the day, when you're ready to sell your dental practice, not only are you going to have equity in your dental practice, but now you may have a building that you own that's worth two, three, four, five times more than what you paid for it. Let's say you're in practice 40 years. That's realistic. You know, it's a, real, it's a real thing. The other big advantage when it comes to real estate, especially when we're talking about investment real estate mm -hmm. or business use real estate, such as your own dental practice, you could do what's called a 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. What that means is that if you, I'll give you an example. You bought a building for, let's say, 500000 30 mm -hmm. years later, that worth $2 million. Let's say it's fully depreciated. That $2 million would be all taxable to you if you sold it that mm -hmm. year. Using that as an example. 
you could do a 1031 exchange, which will allow you to sell that property and buy another property they can also use for investment purposes, and you will not pay any income tax on that at all. And just be clear, that doesn't have to be a, for the listeners and viewers, that doesn't have to be a dental practice property. That can be any commercial property, right? That, that is 100% correct. So the, the rule is clear. You have to buy, they call it like-kind property in the mm-hmm. tax code. And that's the most misunderstood thing. People think if they sold a six-family property, they're going to buy a six-family property. Mm-hmm. Not the case at all. What, they, what the, real, the rule should really say is you cannot sell investment or business property and exchange it for personal use right. property. Mm-hmm. So if you sell your office building uh, and then buy a uh, new home you're going to live in in Florida, that doesn't work. Because right. that's an investment property or business property for personal use property. So you can literally do an exchange between your office building and buy a farm in Montana uh, that you're going to use it for investment purposes. You can buy vacant land. You can buy a high-rise building. You can buy anything you want as long as the intention is for business or investment purposes. Mm-hmm. So 1031 exchange is a very, very valuable uh, tool. And uh, if, if we have time, I'm going to just go through some of the details of that. Yeah, uh, and then that'll be fine. That will be, yeah. Just so that uh, to make the point too, it does have to be of, and you maybe maybe you're going to be covering this too, but it has to be of e- the building you're going to invest in this the secondary one after you've sold has to be of equal or greater value as well, right? That's correct. Yeah, and that's going to be part of the criteria that I'm going to go through okay. with you right now. Great. So 1031 exchange basically allows you to defer the capital gains tax on the sale of that property, uh, and that's allowed by the Internal Revenue Sur- Service as long as we sell investment or business real estate for other investment or real business real estate. So again, that's called the 1031 exchange. And I already explained the difference between like-kind and personal use. Mm-hmm. So I won't repeat that here again. Now, from an estate planning point of view, this is tremendous benefit to real estate ownership, but it's also a tremendous benefit uh, for estate planning purposes. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say you bought that dental office building for 500000 You sold it for $2 million. You deferred the tax. So you didn't have to pay the tax on the $2 million. Now you're out of the practice. You have that money invested in another property. You're collecting income from that property. Let's say 30 years later, you're 100 years old. You pass away. You die at that point. That property you bought for $2 million, let's say now is worth $5 million. Mm-hmm. On your date of death, that property now will go to your beneficiaries. It's treated as if your beneficiaries paid $5 million for that property. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Tax deferral, remember we said we deferred the tax? Right. You didn't have to pay it until you sold the property. Being that you never sold the property while you were alive, you never paid the tax on it. But now the story gets better. Your children will inherit that property at that stepped-up basis value. They never pay a penny of tax. So now we just turn tax deferral into complete tax avoidance, which is completely legal. You're allowed to do this. Can't tell you. I could give you dozens of stories where people made the worst decisions of their lives, and they didn't talk to me about it until after they already sold the property. Mm. Well, guess what? I couldn't help them at that point. Yep. 
Time to get help from your tax advisor is before you sign that contract so you can structure these things the right way. So that, that to me is a huge benefit mm-hmm. of real estate ownership. You got the benefit over 39 years of deducting a phantom deduction mm-hmm. under the assumption of properties losing value every year when in fact it's increasing in value. You then do a 1031 exchange, avoid the tax, but could still get rid of that office building. Maybe you don't want to be in uh, uh, New York anymore and that's where your practice was. You buy a building somewhere else and then you leave it to your children wherever your beneficiaries are, and they don't pay a penny of tax on either. I don't think there's any better strategy out there from a real estate tax point of view than implementing a 1031 exchange Mm -hmm. and holding it till the very end. And by the end, I mean, until you pass away. So it's important that people think about it, not just in terms of the dollars and cents. I mean, it might seem intimidating for a younger doctor, especially they're on their own, maybe in practice, maybe they bought out a senior doctor's practice and that senior doctor wants to sell them the real estate. <clears throat> I think it could be intimidating to look at that type of debt you're taking on now. You, you have your student loan debt, you have now you have some practice debt as you're buying out of practice and now real estate debt. But what you're saying is look at it over a long term and you're going to be paying rent anyway. Yes, you have some more management headaches and owning a building and a property comes along with certain responsibilities, obviously, insurance and taxes and all of that. But if you work with good advisors and you budget for that accordingly, you have some significant tax advantages during those years as well, plus the depreciation, plus then this asset that can outlive you essentially uh, just because you were able to deal with some of those maybe additional expenses or debt in the beginning, thinking about this over the continuum of all your practice years plus beyond is really important. 100%, 100%. It really does make a big difference. So if a bank is willing to lend you the money to finance the purchase of your dental practice, even if you have a high student loan debt, and they're willing to lend you the money to buy the building, my suggestion is you plan on being there 10 years or longer, just do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, one thing that really drives me crazy, I have dentists that you know, come to me, they rented a office space. Let's say it was a broken down office building. They just invested a million dollars of their own money renovating somebody else's property. Mm-hmm. You know, forget about the dental equipment and all the money that goes into brand new wiring, new plumbing, new sheetrock. New, they, they renovated this whole building. Yep. They did this for the benefit of the landlord. You yep. know, are you kidding me? That makes no sense. Yep. So I'd rather see you borrow that extra money, buy the building, now make the improvements to your building. You own that building. So that building may have been worth 500000 after you made those improvements. The building, right after you did those improvements, now worth a million dollars. Why mm-hmm. give that money up to the, mm-hmm. the landlord? To me, it doesn't make, make any sense at all, especially with all the other benefits I just mentioned to you. So it, it is a game changer. So Strictly from a tax point of view, buying the building is definitely going to be the way to go. Mm-hmm. If there's other personal issues, like you said, you don't want to worry about managing the uh, piece of real estate, maybe you shouldn't be in practice yourself then anyway, because mm-hmm. managing a piece of real estate is a lot easier than running a dental practice. Oh, yeah, so without a doubt. Definitely, definitely got to think about that. Yeah. So just to go through some of the rules with the 1031 exchange, the dentist that's selling the practice, the day he goes to closing and now sold the practice, within 45 days of that date, they have to identify what they're going to use as a replacement property. Mm-hmm. And then within 180 days of the day 
they went to closing, they have to close on the new property. You have to meet those strict criteria. Because if you and just to clarify, John, day, sorry, when you sell in the practice building, right? Not not the specific practice, the, the real estate part. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you cannot do a 1031 exchange with the practice, mm -hmm. just the practice office building. So 1031 exchange only relates to real estate. Believe it or not, uh, I think it was about six or seven years ago, you could have done a 1031 exchange even with a dental practice. They oh, wow. I didn't that. know that. Practices and uh, any business for that matter, but you had to buy another business with that money. Okay. That's no longer allowed, but they still protected the real estate aspect of the 1031 exchange, luckily. And it's a, it's a terrific tax saving strategy. So there are strict rules you've got to follow. And one thing I forgot to mention to you before is that you know these are huge advantages to the owner of the dental practice that also owns the real estate. Mm -hmm. But I've seen dentists say that you know the dentist practice owner wants to sell me the practice, but they don't want to sell the real estate. Yeah. They don't want yep. to pay the tax on it. Right. Well, if you bring to their attention, look, there's 1031 exchange and other things you can do and have them speak to a tax smart advisor, then that dentist who's hesitating from selling the practice, uh, yep. the building within building. the practice, mm -hmm. what he's going to do is he's going to say, you know what? It may make sense. Mm -hmm. Let me just sell both. And that is a win-win, again, for the dental practice buyer and the seller as well. So. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Of, you were saying the 45 days uh, of identifying, and then that's when I had interrupted you there. So sorry, back to the, the other the, the other time point you were mentioning. Sure. So once you go to contract, uh, you have a legal obligation to sell that property. The key date that we're concerned about is the date to go to closing. So once you sell that property, uh, and that money is basically exchanged, mm -hmm. at that closing, mm -hmm you nor your lawyer is allowed to touch that money you can't mm -hmm. get the check that money has to go to what's called a qualified intermediary mm -hmm. generally that's a title company or yet another lawyer they have to hold that money in escrow for you because once you take possession of that money well that's you off 1031 exchange doesn't work so critically important you get a qualified intermediary that will step in collect the check hold that money in escrow for you until you're ready to buy the replacement property so just so to be clear, you can't more. get paid out at the closing and then call your attorney or your, your accountant and say, oh, I want to do a 1031 exchange with this, this check. You cannot do that. And again, have I gotten calls like that in the past? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. <laughs> so it goes, it goes back to rule number one, planning, 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 right? If you're yeah. not planning, not talking, you can't get tax advice after the fact. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. You have to get tax advice before you engage in a transaction critically important. So now it's the closing day, money is released, the qualified intermediary takes that money, holds on to it until you're ready to buy the replacement property. But that's also the day the 45 day period starts to run. Okay. So within 45 days in writing, you have to notify your qualified intermediary, I'm interested in using that money to buy either property A, B, C, whatever it is, so you want to give them a number of different things you're thinking about buying. And it can be multiple properties. You can also have multiple properties. There's a few different rules there that are a little complicated. I won't get into the details, but generally you could identify three properties, but you can also identify more than three properties. There's a whole other rule. I'm not going to get into it here okay. today, yeah. but we're going to make sure you talk to your tax advisor about that. Yeah. 
So within that 45 day, if you identify I may buy property A, B, or C, you met that part of the requirement, but now you have to close on the purchase of one or more of those properties you identify. Mm-hmm. And that closing has to be within 180 days, days of when you close. So yep. just less than six months you have throughout that whole process. Okay. So this is not an easy concept, but if utilized correctly, tremendous game changer. Again, the example I gave, the doctor could have lost close to half, let's call it 40% of the money in taxes. Mm-hmm. Now the beneficiary could potentially have not only paid no tax on that, but no tax on all other future appreciation. If you want to leave a legacy to your children, this is a great way to do it. You know, it just makes an awful lot of sense. So that, that is the, the abbreviated version of a 1031 exchange. Okay. We talk about it a little bit in my book, uh, but you know, I've written many articles on this subject. I'm sure that you'll find one on this subject on my website as well. And then can you, with that, just to finish up, um, and on a personal note, I went through this process with you. And um, so when I sold my building, so can you talk a little bit about DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trusts, and how that works with, in conjunction with the 1031 exchange? Absolutely. And that's uh, it's great. glad you brought that up because for many dentists, uh, and not just dentists, but also real estate investors, they get to a point in their life, you know, they turn 60, 65, so you know what? I don't want any headaches of owning my own practice. They sell their practice, mm-hmm. but they may own one or maybe dozens of properties. And anybody that owns real estate knows it's a part-time job. In some cases, it could be a full-time job. So you know, if a tenant's toilet breaks, you get that phone call. If there's termites in the house, they call it the terrible teeth. Termites, tenants, and trash. You know, if you don't want to deal with the headaches like that. of actually running your own property. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then a great alternative for you is doing a 1031 exchange. But instead of selling your dental office building and then buying a 12 family apartment building somewhere mm-hmm. and now having to deal with more headaches and more tenants, mm-hmm. you can do a 1031 exchange through a Delaware statutory trust. And what that does for you, it puts you in a position where you're buying a small piece of a much larger property. Mm-hmm. So the way I want you to look at it is, uh, there's something called the REIT, the Real Estate Investment Trust, where you mm-hmm. can invest some money into real estate without physically owning and managing that property. Mm-hmm. I want you to think of a Delaware Statutory Trust similar to a, to a real estate investment trust, but the big difference is a DST qualifies for 1031 exchange treatment. Mm-hmm. A real Estate Investment Trust would not qualify. Okay, yep. So, some of the big advantages of owning a DST include no management responsibilities or headaches. So what that means mm-hmm. is, is it's professionally managed. They're worrying about signing new leases, getting new tenants in there, dealing with paying the bills and making sure real estate taxes are protested. So all the headaches of property management now are not in your hands, someone else's hands. This becomes now truly a passive investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, investing in something like investing in a stock where you not have you have no responsibility to it because there's a team there worrying about it. The other big thing is, let's say you sold your building for a million dollars. There's only certain type of quality buildings you could buy for a million dollars. Mm-hmm. You're going to get access now to institutional share class properties. So some of these DSTs own $100 million worth of real estate. It could be anything from a 
single family development in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, for example. You know, it could be uh, an Amazon distribution center that's selling for 50 million. Uh, it could be, you know, any one of these things it could be high rise building, you name it, it could be it as long as it's investment real estate, but you now don't have the responsibility of managing that property. So you're going to get access to institutional quality property that otherwise you wouldn't be in a position to buy that level of real estate and there's benefits of that. With a DST, you also get limited liability protection. So let's say you own the property in your own name, you had unlimited liability. Through a DST, you get limited liability protection, just like you do with an LLC, mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier. One of the things I love about DSTs is that you get diversification. Now, again, I live in New York, and if all my real estate was in New York, I would be a little worried right now because mm-hmm. things aren't that great in New York these mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to diversify yourself and your investments out of one area. I have clients that have hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate. If it's all concentrated in one city and that city goes bad, chances are that property value is going to go down mm-hmm. and they're going to lose money. So DST gives you the opportunity to have geographical diversification. So you may own a self-storage facility in Ohio. You may own you know, a hotel in, uh, in, in Florida. So you have property and your money is now invested in different states. Preferably, they're going to be landlord-friendly states. Uh, that that's probably where you want to do the DST. So having geographical diversification, I think, is a big saver because it helps minimize your risk. No guarantee mm-hmm. there, of course, but it, it should help. But in addition to that, you could have asset class diversification. So office buildings right now is not a place I would be investing. Most of these high-rise buildings in Manhattan, half of them are half empty. And mm-hmm. a lot of these tenants are not going to renew their lease because a lot of professions now are working remotely, so people are working from home. So office buildings as a whole, I wouldn't be jumping into an office building. So if you own an office building for your dental practice, they say, you know what, maybe it's time to get out. 1031 exchange that into other real estate asset classes. Again, self-storage facility, senior living facilities, maybe, maybe hotels, student housing, I love student housing, and even multifamily residences. So that gives you the added diversification, not just geographical, but from an asset class point of view. And you can pick and choose what you want depending on what DSP is available at that time. From an estate planning point of view, I already told you the tremendous advantage mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, again, you're going to do a 1031 exchange by a DST. That also gets the step up in basis. Mm-hmm. The tax deferral becomes complete tax avoidance. Uh, also a DST, let's say there is a property you do want to buy and you're pretty committed to buying it. And you, you have to always wonder what happens if that building, you don't qualify for a mortgage. Well, what if that building goes through an environmental uh, engineering uh, analysis and it fails and the bank says, I can't lend you money on that building. Guess what? You're going to get stuck paying the tax. Mm-hmm. So why I say DST, listing that as maybe your plan B or plan C, in the event your original plan of buying some other property you're going to manage doesn't work out, mm-hmm. your fail safe is you can still complete the 1031 in the DST okay. because it's one of the properties you identify. So the terminology we use is swap until you drop. 
What that means is with a DST, typically when you buy one of these, the plan is you're not going to own it for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. There's a business plan associated with each one of them. And generally within seven years or so, the DST property is going to be sold. Mm-hmm. At that point, you have a liquidating event and you have a decision to make either A, buy, I'm sorry, either A, pay the tax now, mm-hmm. which would be a bad decision, or B, you could then do another 1031 exchange by another physical property that you want to manage or go into yet another DST once that real estate in your DST is sold. So the term for that is called swap until you drop. Mm-hmm. And more than 90% of investors that go into DSTs stay with them. Generally, the reason they may not stay with one is because if you were that beneficiary that inherited the property, mm-hmm. you don't have a tax liability, you may not want to put your money yeah. into that real estate. But at that point, your children have the option. They can invest in a lot of different things and not just have it concentrated into real estate. So again, the advantages to doing a DST are tremendous. And then when you combine that with the advantages of a 1031 exchange, if it meets all your needs, it's definitely something you have to consider. I want to speak personally on that in, in a second, but just uh, a couple quick questions on it. If you were in, in a DST and you went through that five, seven years and they they complete that business plan and sell it, let's say you invested a million and they sell it for a million five hundredths or 1.5. I think it's important for everybody to know you're not only gaining in the asset of the appreciation of that real estate value, but there's oftentimes distributions that are coming to you monthly, quarterly, so forth, while you're owning that, just as you would be taking profits if you owned a building and people are paying rent, uh, you just literally get those distributions coming to you while you have that money invested in that particular asset. Um, And you uh, at that point, leading to the question, when you go up to that 1.5 from the 1 million you invested, do you get a step up in basis to that 1.5? Or do you, uh, if you were to roll it into a new DST, are you now at a $1.5 million basis? Or are you still at that one plus the 500,000 of gain that you were? So in other words, do you get a carry forward like it does upon death? Or do you owe back to what you would initially have owned back when you sold the property for the first time and, and could have realized that gain. Yeah. So when you do a DST, you basically do a 1031 exchange into a DST, whatever your cost basis was on that original property, mm-hmm. that will continue to be your cost basis indefinitely. Okay. Because okay. it's just tax deferral. Got it. Uh, any future appreciation, you'll want to defer that as well into your next deal. So that you, you just keep kicking the can down the road literally until you die, and then your family gets to step up in basis. So it doesn't eliminate that. Uh, Another important point, I'm glad you brought that up, is if you, let's say you sold the property, your office building, you had no mortgage on it, and that property you received 500,000 for. You buy into a DST, you can buy into a DST that has no debt, so you'll get $500,000 worth of real estate, no different than you were before. Mm-hmm. But a lot of DSTs will come with debt. They already have mortgages built into them. Mm-hmm. So your 500000 if you go into a DST that has 50% leverage, you'll be buying a million dollars worth of real estate mm-hmm. for your 500000 What that does for you is, number one, you have more money invested, but also now that extra 500000 that you just bought, you could start depreciating that all over again over that 39 year period. Mm-hmm. So we're going to create more of that phantom deduction depreciation 
for many, many years to come. Another important point, your, your, your comment before made me think of a lot of uh, other things I should have brought up. But let's say you sold your building for 500000 yep. and you ended up having to give the government 200000 in tax. Now you only have 300000 to invest wherever you're going to invest, whether it be another piece of real estate, stocks, or whatever. Being that you did a 1031 exchange, you have the full $500,000 yep. working for you forever. So now you're not only making money on what is your money after taxes, mm -hmm. but you're making money on the money you didn't have to give up to the government. So let's assume it's 30% more that you're, you, you've managed to keep. That means if you're earning uh, 5%, you're really earning more than 5%, right? Because right? you're earning 5% of what you would have had had you paid the tax. Right. Plus, you're making five percent on that other thirty percent. Yep. So the compounding effect of that over many years and decades, yeah, you know, it's tremendous. So these these are definitely on the top of my list of wealth building strategies. Mm -hmm. These are tax smart strategies, real estate tax smart strategies. If you're not taking advantage of it, I hate to use the term you're being tax stupid, but it's not tax smart. It's tax stupid. You're just throwing money away to the government unnecessarily. If the government allows you to do this and it's perfectly within the parameters of the law, why not take advantage? I'll just say you, it, from a personal standpoint, it played out exactly like you said. The X's and O's of when you go to implement the sale of the building and getting the qualified intermediary and identifying at 45 days, it can be a little stressful. You know, you can be, you've got usually at that time in someone's life, there's a lot going on when they're selling the property business transition and practice transition. So it can be, I think it intimidates some people up front, but it's not that big a deal. You have advisors that guide you through it, you and your team and, and the cooperative intermediary um, attorney that's involved in it in the real estate attorney. And you just kind of go through that transaction and then you have the 180 days. <clears throat> and just to speak to how you, your team handled it, which was, was very easy was you, because you're doing the due diligence and vetting these properties, which I would tell people, you want to make sure you work with someone like John who understands this DST arena uh, because you don't want to get taken by a scam or some sort of property that you're going to throw the money in and you don't know what's going to happen to it. So John would vet these companies and would just periodically through in that 180-day window, we knew our stop point. You and I both communicated, okay, by this point, we have to identify and by this point, we we have to close. Um we just said in that window, let's just kind of see what comes at us. And we ended up having some options where like you meant storage units in the Midwest and um, and one had, I think, multiple storage units in different states. And then there was one in there as an apartment complex in Arizona and uh, assisted living facility in St. Louis. And so uh, Amazon distribution center in Florida. So we just started looking at these different properties. You would send them to me with a summary of of what the their sort of balance sheets were on, on the projected revenues. And I would look at them. And then we just said, when we got to the point that we had to kind of make that decision, we just looked at what would be best for my particular situation and 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 what I felt most comfortable in. And I own some, uh, have assets in storage units already and I have some assets in, in luxury apartment buildings. So for me, getting into the retired assisted living facility was another way, as you said, to diversify a little bit. Yeah. And, and could I have gone into a storage unit? Sure, but I already have some investments in that. So it was a really nice way to do it. And, and it, it worked really well and it was seamless. And Working with you and your team, it, it it was executed perfectly, and and now it's just there, and you get the 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 revenue distribution process uh, checks coming through as just a standard process, and then your assets growing from there. So uh, it really is. I mean, it, versus if I just taken that money, paid taxes on it, and then invested it post tax, even if you invested in paper assets or a different. You are, I mean, you just, you have to gain, we, you and I spent a lot of time talking about it and running some of the numbers, but what we, you would, I would have had to catch up on 
to try to make that money back that I lost in taxes on day one, I mean, you could, you probably never would catch it. And then you have the other tax advantages of the step up in basis, but you know, continuing to roll it in and then on your death, step up in basis. So yeah, it's a really cool, a cool asset uh, vehicle. And I think something that um, I hope more docs take advantage of while it's still available because it was really a, a, a great thing. Right. Yep. Awesome. Glad, well, uh, glad we worked on that one for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was great. So, well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to go through all this. It was really, I mean, just such great information. Um, you're going to be at the Greater New York Dental Meeting. Can you just want to let everybody know the details of that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to be doing three three lectures. Uh, one of them is going to be duplicated. So one of the lectures is called 10 Characteristics of a Multimillionaire Dentist. So basically we go through all these strategies of how to get there. Uh, that is going to be on Friday, November 24th from 9 to 12. Mm -hmm. uh, the course code there, if you want to write it down, is 1080-1080. Then on Wednesday, November 29th from 2 to 5 p.m., uh, that's for those people that are not morning people. They come to the afternoon session. <laughs> That'll be on that Wednesday. The course uh, number there is 6300. And then uh, on Wednesday, November 29th, same day as the, the, the later session, I'm going to be doing a session strictly on creating a financially successful dental practice. Uh, pretty much I'm covering everything in chapter 11 in my book with real life examples. Uh, some of the stuff we've covered in the three podcasts we have, uh, the two we already did and the one we're going to be doing shortly, but it's going to include a lot more information as well. That one's from 9 a.m. to 12 on November 29th, course code is 6180. So you just want to go to the Greater New York Dental Meeting website, which is www.gnydm.com. You could just uh, look up my name, it'll show you the courses. I'd encourage you to, uh, to attend. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to actually interact with me, ask questions. I'd be happy to meet with you guys uh, even after the lecture, answer any personal questions you might not be comfortable asking in front of a group of people. So uh, hopefully I'll see a few of you there. That's great. Thank you. And I'll put up a, um, I have a slide you'd given me from the first time that I can put up again that just shows those codes and the time so people can see it, um, screenshot it. And then I'll just, I'll also put it in the show notes, uh, link to to that as well, to the, the Greater New York Dental Meeting site so that they have that, uh, have that too. Great. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So uh, this concludes part two and part three, as you just referenced, will be the last one in the series. That's going to be more on retirement planning, tax strategies for dentists. Um, that's probably going to be airing sometime November, probably late November. Um, and I just want to again thank John so much for for his expertise, for the time to to explain all of this and explain it in the detail that you go into it. I know this is going to help doctors of all ages out there uh, be able to at least ask the right questions and start to get more educated on their financial the financial side of things, most especially the tax side of things, and really, really get it, get it just a ton of value out of out of the information that you provided. So thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to be on the doc podcast for this. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Looking forward to the next one. Same here. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for watching this episode of the doc podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one -on -one coaching session with me. And remember to join the doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the doc community. 
You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things. Thank you.